Hi, this is Carolyn Nee Lachlan, your hostess with the mostest of From Paper to People podcast, and you're listening to Pop Goes Your World. If you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. And now it's time for our feature presentation. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 173, True Romance Movie Review. Welcome to the show. I'm Chris McBrien, along with Derek Myers, and this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Derek, how are you, my friend? Doing well, Chris. How are good. you tonight? I'm good. I'm good. Talking with my bud. Life yeah, is good. Yeah. So that's, the, that's my favorite part of the podcast, getting a chance to catch up and talk yeah. and mm-hmm. talk movies, talk, talk music, talk TV, talk nerd, talk pop culture. Well, what is new in pop culture for you? You always have so much more time on your hands, it seems. So what have you been up to? Uh, had a chance to watch a few things this week. Uh, I'll, I'll sort of just hit the high points though. First and foremost, I had a chance to watch the justice league Snyder cut. Do you know what this is? So I've, I've saw this on social media. I'm glad you mentioned it. This whole Snyder cut thing. I have no idea what that is. As far as I'm concerned, Snyder was the guy, um, you know, the super in the building for Anne Romano on one day at a time. I don't know. Of what this course, is. of yeah. course, that's your, your deep cut pull for that one. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, a few years back, mm-hmm. the, uh, DC universe, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, they decided we're going to do what Marvel's been doing. And we're going to bring all of those characters together in one movie. Uh, just like in the comic books, it's the justice league of America. We're going to call the movie justice league. We're going to bring all the characters together and have this grand old adventure. And Zack Snyder is the director and Zack Snyder had previously directed the Superman, the most recent Superman films. He had also, uh, directed the, the movie 300, which was based on a Frank Miller comic book. He had directed the Watchmen, which was based on is the, there, uh, sorry, the comic is, book. is there a more recent Superman than the Brandon Routh one? Yes, okay. there are there are two Superman movies that star um, Henry Cavill as right. Superman, and then shows you how and, much I know. Yeah, and then he also <laughs> appears as Superman in this Justice League okay. movie. So, in any case, the movie came out a few years ago. It was not great. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a lot of different issues about it, and unfortunately, uh, during the filming of the movie, uh, Zack Snyder's di- daughter passed away. I, I don't I don't remember the specifics, uh, but obviously, when you lose a, a family member, you stop working. You know, you need to you need to take time to be with your family and grieve and all the rest of that. And so the uh, the the powers that be at Warner Brothers said, you know, Zack Snyder, go and do what you have to do with your family. Now, I I believe there was already some some friction with with him and the the power the people who held the money. So I think they had already sort of anticipated they might need to bring in someone to help. And so they brought in Joss Whedon, who had directed the Avengers movie, and so they knew he had an eye for. Um, superhero style movies and he's known for adding a lot of humor to what can otherwise be a more serious uh, type of, of story. So the final movie that was released a few years back in the theaters called justice league. It was, it was directed by Zack Snyder. Joss Whedon didn't get an official credit on it, but everybody knew he did some work and everybody knew he had punched up the writing. 
and it it flopped. I mean, it did well, but it didn't it didn't do gangbusters. It was no Avengers. Like when Avengers came out, it broke all sorts of box office records. The Justice mm-hmm. League did not do anything of the sort, largely because the, the story was kind of confusing and people weren't happy with some of the casting. There was a lot of reasons it didn't work. Maybe I, well, I, I sh- maybe I shouldn't admit this, but I've never even heard of it. Well, so that's good. So what happened after that was a lot of people in the industry that were close to the people to Zack Snyder and some of the other people who were attached to the project were saying, well, what got released to the public wasn't what Zack Snyder had actually envisioned. And so there was what they called the quote unquote Snyder cut, basically the director's cut of the movie where Zack Snyder would have actually got to release the movie he wanted to release based on the things he shot. Because apparently they shot hours and hours and hours of footage and then you trim it down to that two, two and a half hour uh, runtime. And so after years of lobby, like years, been two or three years of lobbying and online online pressure and like the the release, the Snyder cut hashtag finally Warner brothers thought, you know what? Maybe there's some money to be made here. Maybe there's some goodwill to be made here. And they gave Snyder permission to go back and recut the movie in any way he saw fit. And so he did. And it got re-released on uh, HBO max or HBO crave. If you're in Canada and it dropped last week, it runs four hours and two minutes and it is fantastic. Oh, really? It is great. It is unlike the original movie in so many ways. And, and there were certain scenes in the original, in the original release that fans sort of went, you know what? That scene really feels like it was probably written and directed by Joss Whedon, just based on the tone and the humor and the dialogue. And, and sure enough, all those scenes got cut out because Snyder's like, that's not what I wanted for this movie. So the, the, the order of events was resequenced as well. Like that was one of the things about the original cut that was so confusing was things were happening and you're like, well, I don't understand why this is happening now and what's going on here. And why is this taking so long? The Snyder cut, it just was made so much more sense. The story was, was so much clearer. The, the motivation for the villains just like made so much more sense. I mean, if you're not a superhero movie fan, this isn't going to wow you any more than the original, but if you are a fan and you kind of felt cheated by that first justice league movie, don't be intimidated by the four hour runtime. Give yourself the time to watch this new justice league cut. Now it is broken up into, I want to say like six or eight chapters. Like there's the big, the black screen and then a title card to be like chapter one, mm-hmm. just like you would in a, uh, like in a comic books, they'll release like a limited series where you'll get a six or eight issue limited series. That's how this long, long movie felt. It was almost like it was, it would have been it would have been perfect to be released on like Netflix as a yeah. six episode series. Series, yeah. Instead, they're just like, we're gonna give it to you all at once, four hours, here you go, bang. So there are natural points in the movie where if you're like, okay, I've given it 90 minutes and I need a break, where when you get to that next one, part six, whatever, you're just like, okay, I'm gonna pause it here, I'll come back tomorrow. And that's actually what my wife and I did. We watched half the one night and half the next night. And when it was over, we sort of both went, that was actually really, really good. Like huh. way better than we expected, given how crappy the first one was. So very, I was very pleased with it. I'm actually looking forward to going back and watching it again in a couple of weeks, largely because I'm a big fan of Batman and Superman and Wonder Woman and the DC canon. And, and I just, I really enjoyed it enough that I, I want to go back and watch it again. And not everyone's going to feel that way, but if you watch the first one and you thought there was a lot, like you, if you didn't feel it was great, but you kind of wanted it to be, give the new one a, a second try. Cool. So. You know, I'm not a big fan of like director's cuts and like recutting all these movies. But one thing I will say um, the prequels, you know how much I, I loved the Star Wars prequels. Well, uh-huh. episode one, uh, A Phantom Menace, you know, it's like one of the worst movies ever made. I saw somewhere online, it might have been YouTube, I can't remember, 
Um, but s- some fans, I guess, got together and recut the movie. And they did exactly what you were saying. They put it all out of sequence and they changed everything up. And so the movie actually opens with the final lightsaber duel, you know, with Darth Maul and the double mm-hmm, lightsaber mm-hmm. thing. That's how the movie opens. And then it kind of goes from there. And um, I didn't watch a whole lot of it because, I mean, the movie sucks, but it was much better. So I think, you know, some, there is somebody to be said sometimes for, for going back and changing things, I guess, if the movie's crappy, you know, so, so there's that. Yeah. So that, that was, that was sort of mm-hmm. my quote unquote big Hollywood release for the week. Nice. Uh, and then of course it wouldn't be a, a week on this podcast if uh, I didn't have a documentary to talk about. For 40 days and 40 nights, we watch documentaries. He likes to learn about the world. It's Derek's documentaries. Documentary. By the way, I have an idea for a new song. Uh huh. What's that? <laughs> uh, I'm not going to tell you too much. I'm just going to work on it, but it might it might involve me busting some rhymes. Uh oh. <laughs> so uh, well, that might be the week I'm too sick to do the podcast. <laughs> so so there's that. Anyway, so so uh, I'm just kind of putting together some ideas right now and then I'll go in the studio and, and uh, the, uh, you know. the owners of reggae music have, uh, have launched an embargo that you're not allowed to do anything even remotely in that vein or that genre because it embarrasses you and it, and it embarrasses I them. I did it once. I did one well, reggae song. Anyway, okay, well, what's your documentary? Okay. Anyway, back to the documentary. Yeah. So a brand new documentary just mm. dropped on HBO yesterday. So I, of course had to watch it late last night so I could talk about it today. It's from HBO Sports. It's called The Day Sports Stood Still. Okay. Do you know anything about it? Never heard of it. Okay. So uh, there's this little thing called the coronavirus that's going on right now, COVID-19. I've never and heard of it. Yeah. No, I, I let me tell you all about it. So it okay. was about a year ago. Um, all of the sports leagues basically within a 12-hour period decided, hey, this is going to be a big deal. Uh, Some of the players are starting to test positive. Fans could be at risk being in the stadium in that close proximity to everybody else. And it started with basketball. uh, And that's how the documentary starts, where they they show you there's a basketball game. It was uh, the Jazz and the uh, uh, Oklahoma City. They were they were literally they went out. They did the warm up. They did the national anthem. They were ready to play the game. And then. They called the, the, the powers that be the, the management and staff came running out to talk to the referees and they sent the teams back to the locker room and they said, we're sorry, tonight's game has been canceled. And people are like, uh, OK, what's going on? And um, once that happened, it was a snowball effect. They started to say, like, look, if there's a real health risk here, we you know, this can't be the only game that stops. There are other games on the schedule right now, tonight that are starting within the next few hours. What are we going to do? And basketball was basically like. If we if we don't feel strong enough that this game can be played, we got to cancel all the games. And then once the NHL heard that, they're like, OK, we, if, if basketball stopping, we got to stop hockey. And they're like, well, if you know, if football's not like all the other sports, like spring training had started and mm-hmm. they were like, I think it was just the pitchers and catchers had reported spring training. And they're like, nope, send them home. We're done. And so within a 24 hour period. In light uh, on top of everything else that's going on with coronavirus, not that we really knew a lot about it at that time, sports literally stopped so hence the title the day the sport stood still sports stopped hmm. that's the first five minutes of the documentary they sort of recap right. this is how we got here and then the next 90 minutes or so of the documentary they talk about how it starts off talking about like well how do we get sports back in this world they talk about like the, the bubbles and things like that but what it actually ended up focusing on more uh which to me was a little bit of a pl- pleasant surprise was 
predominantly was focusing on the basketball because those were the guys obviously that they, um, they had access to that were interested in doing this documentary. And they basically said, uh, you know, since the basketball players are the majority of basketball players are people of color, they have a tremendous platform on which to try and talk about social issues and push for social change. And this was in light of all of the other craziness that was going on in America at the time. You know, you had the George Floyd, you had the the Jacob Blake, you had Breonna Taylor, like all this stuff is happening. And so the players were like, if we agree to go back to play basketball, we have a platform by which we can bring a lot of uh, ch change. We can promote change. We can talk about the issues that need to be talked about that maybe other powers that be are not interested in talking about in this time. And so the documentary follows the, the re- rise of sports in a COVID world, but it is also talking about the power that athletes have and the responsibility that athletes have to promote social change and use that platform uh, to be positive role models. And, and it, it was, it was very like, I'm watching the movie and I'm like tearing up at parts. Like it's very emotional when you hear some of the, the, the personal firsthand experiences the players have had both with COVID and the loss of family. And then obviously there was the, the, their impact and their, uh, how they were affected by various social issues that were going on. Uh, yeah, it was, it was phenomenal. It was really, really good. So it's about, it runs about an hour and 40 minutes. It's directed by Antoine Fuqua, who uh, is a big Hollywood director. He directed Training Day. He directed The Equalizer. Like this guy is a is a real deal director. So like you could you could tell they put a lot of money behind making this documentary, and they they did a great job. It's fantastic. Nice. All right. Well, I got something for you. Here's your dad joke of the week, Derek. Where do you learn to make a banana split? Ah. <sighs> I don't know, Dairy Queen. Sunday school. No. That joke is an offense to God. <laughs> Why didn't anyone tell me my was so big? Joke after joke after joke after joke. We ate that. I bet she gives great helmets. Never watch that part again. This is dumb. This is dumb. How many we got on this ship anyhow not nearly as bad as say something like revenge of the nerd evil will always triumph over good because good is dumb i don't think it's something i would want to watch over and over again they don't make movies like this anymore they just don't all right derek so last show i nominated beverly hills cop for our movie to review and this week it was your turn to pick a film and you went with the 1993 tony scott movie true romance starring christian slater and Patricia Arquette. Now, if we could, let's start off with a bit of an explanation of why you chose this movie because it needed to complement Beverly Hills Cop. So why'd you go with this one? Okay, so my, my through line from where we were last week to where we are this week was a sort of a number of loose tangents that together formed a pretty, pretty strong line. So this movie is directed by Tony Scott, who was the director of Beverly Hills Cop 2. It's okay. not a direct link, but along the right. same vein, yep. Beverly Hills Cop is about uh, drug smugglers and the cops that try and stop them and, and the shenanigans that ensue around that. This movie is about drugs and drug dealers and cops and selling drugs. So, again, there's that idea of the cops and the drugs uh, and that. So, again, not exactly directly the same thing, but close. And then third, 
Beverly Hills Cop has that great scene where Axel Foley goes to the art exhibit and he meets Bronson Pinchot, who plays uh, um, Serge, who offers him an espresso with a lemon twist. Uh, again, Serge doesn't have a big part, but he's got a very memorable part in uh, Beverly Hills Cop. And Bronson Pinchot has a very has a, a small supporting role in this movie. So those three things together were sort of my thought of how does this connect to the last one? So that that's how we got from there to here. Okay. So, uh, I've hated a lot of movies that you've made me watch on this podcast, as you know. I know. And this movie, how can I say this, is hands down the best movie you have had me watch. Wow. Okay, I was worried you were going to have I know. I was a little okay. bit of a red herring. Woo. This it's, movie. It's, I'm glad you was said that. One of my fantastic. buddies said, "If Chris doesn't like this movie, I am never listening to your podcast again." So, holy mackerel! This movie was really good. And the okay. thing was, I didn't know what to expect coming into it. Where? Why, how have I not seen this movie before? It's from '93 for crying out loud. I I hadn't really heard a lot about it either, other than I knew it was violent, and that Tarantino had written the screenplay. Uh, but that didn't really mean much to me because he wrote the screenplay for Natural Born Killers, and that was one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my entire life. And I didn't, I didn't even have any idea who was in the cast, but man, this movie was really good. And one of the few movies that you have made me watch that I will gladly go back and watch again. Man, it was fantastic. fantastic. I'm so glad you liked it. I'm so glad you liked it. God, it's, it was and, good. And, yeah, I mean, looking Ooh. back now, you see the cast and you're like, wow, it is an all-star. This is an all-star lineup. Like, there's no other way to describe it. And and not even that that Christian Slater and Patricia Arquette are your absolute top-of-the-line A-plus A-listers. I mean, they're both good and they're both recognized, recognizable and they've both done a lot of great things. And I thought they were both great in this movie. But the supporting cast in this movie, Dennis Hopper, Gary Oldman, Brad Pitt, Christopher Walken, Samuel Jackson in a small part, even Saul Rubinek. James Gandolfini, like the people that are in this that have mm -hmm. either were big at the time or have since become so much bigger. It's like this is a who's who of people in Hollywood. Um, Let's yeah, come no, back I, to the cast in a minute because I, sure, I, I sure. want to really dig into them because it was so good. Um, so as we mentioned, it was directed by Tony Scott, which is one of, your one of my favorite all time favorite directors. directors. Yes. Um, the screenplay was written by Quentin Tarantino, which to me was a little surprising that he didn't direct this movie, especially you know, given the fact that he had just released Reservoir Dogs and he was gaining some clout in Hollywood at the time. Maybe he was busy working on Pulp Fiction. I don't well, know. so I read that he had basically the treatment for True Romance and Reservoir Dogs were ready around the same time. And he was shopping them both around. And when he, he talked to Tony Scott to direct, he gave him the option. He goes, these are the two movies I want to make. Which do you prefer? And Tony Scott pulled True Romance and Quentin Tarantino's like, okay, if you're going to do True Romance... I'm going to do Reservoir Dogs. So even though they were released, like I think a year apart, they were being produced around the same time. So, that, I mean, again, assuming the internet is true and it's not always true, sometimes you get some really uh, wild, crazy rumors, but that I read that in a few places. So I think that's why, uh, why Tarantino didn't direct it himself. The movie was not a hit. It made 12.3 no. million at the domestic box office. So the movie was a bomb in the U S even though it gained quite a bit of uh, critical acclaim, 
But if we look at the box office from 93, uh, you know, there was this juggernaut at the top called Jurassic Park, you know, and Never movies like the, the Fugitive <laughs> and, and, the, and The Firm and Sleepless in Seattle, Mrs. Doubtfire, which apparently has a new R-rated cut out there, speaking of uh, director's cuts. So there's lots of like popular movies. But I mean, this movie, it finished, you know, 100 and where was it now? 104th overall. Yeah, but like so many, like so many other movies we've talked about. Mm -hmm. Well, not so many, but like a lot of other movies we've talked about. This was one that really benefited from cable TV and video rental and word of mouth and and the continued success of the people who created it. This was Tony Scott at this point had done Top Gun and Beverly Hills Cop 2 and was on the rise. So and then after this movie, he went on to do a lot of bigger movies as well. So, again, his star is rising as a director. And you've got Quentin Tarantino, who when this was released, Reservoir Dogs had just come out, but was sort of like a cult movie that a lot of people that weren't aware of. This was like this was before Pulp Fiction. But then Pulp Fiction comes out and everyone falls in love with that. And Tarantino, and they're like, what else has this guy done? And they're like, well, he's got two other movies. This one he directed, this one he wrote. And suddenly home video, everyone's like, well, right. I got to see these movies. And I can tell you firsthand, as someone who worked at Blockbuster, True Romance was out every weekend. They're, like, This was one that you didn't really have to push on people. They're like, what can you recommend? They're like, have you seen True Romance? No. Directed by Tony Scott, written by Quentin Tarantino. They're like, I'm in. Like it, it gained a huge cult following. And and that's, I think how it's had legs over the years is, is that's how people, it very few people I know saw this in the theater. I, I actually did see it in the theater. I'll tell you a little bit more about that later, but um, very few people I know saw this in the theater. They experienced it for the first time on home video. And like you, they're like, how did I not see this in the theater? So, or just uh, how did I not see this before? Now it didn't have like massive wide release when it first came no, out, it but, it, no. but it opened on 1,254 screens. So, but I mean, movies like Undercover Blues and Life with Mikey and Judgment Night and Weekend at Bernie's 2 all did better than this. And, uh, you know, I guess at least it did, it did better than The Philadelphia Experiment 2 from Trimark Pictures. It, that movie finished 266th uh, at the box office it. with a grand total of $2,970. Oh my God. So, wow. um, director Tony Scott, you've mentioned... You, you love him. And if you think back to episode 140, we gave our top five lists of our favorite directors of all time. I want to say Tony Scott was number one or number two? Uh, number two. David number Fincher's two. definitely Behind Fincher? Yeah. Ah, but I, it was a one-two race for me. Like yeah. it was like, so we've all, we've already reviewed on a previous podcast. We did Man on Fire, which was also directed by uh, Tony Scott. And mm -hmm. at some point in the not too distant future, I'm going to have you watch Unstoppable, which is the movie about the runaway train. Uh, also by Tony Scott, and I, I'm sure we'll come back and do Beverly Hills Cup two at some point. Also Tony Scott, so I mean his his resume is fantastic. I have a question for you. Sure. What do you think is Tony Scott's best film? Because this is a guy that's directed some pretty memorable films over his career. Now he uh, died he died in 2012 by suicide, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Um, yes. But his his career as a director began back in '83 with The Hunger with David Bowie and Susan Sarandon and Catherine Deneuve. It, it's a bit of a forgotten film, but it's become a bit of a cult classic over the years. It's a really messed up movie, The Hunger, but it, what a bold way to start your career in Hollywood as a director. But um, So yeah. what do you think? What do you think was his best film? I, I got to think Man on Fire. I, okay. I mean, it, just okay. the, the style of how it's shot. You like that uh, one a lot. Yeah. I do. And and he worked with Denzel Washington on a number of films. They did Crimson Tide together um, and um, uh, Man on Fire, Deja Vu, uh, Unstoppable. Like they've worked together on a number of films. 
And um, Man on Fire is definitely one of those like it's one of those movies. If I see it in the lineup, I'm, I'm watching it. And and I, I think that Man on Fire was definitely uh, Tony Scott at his absolute best. And uh, I mean, True Romance, although it was done uh, 11 years before uh, Man on Fire, I think there's a lot in this that you can sort of see like, hey, this guy, this guy knows what he's doing. He, he's someone to watch. Yeah, I mean, Man on Fire, like you mentioned, we did that here on the podcast. That was just okay for me. We also did the A-Team on this podcast, which he directed. Which, no, he didn't. Oh, oh, no, he produced that movie. I'm sorry, he produced that one. Um, Unstoppable, like I say, I've never even heard of. Uh, Days of Thunder, he did Top Gun. Yeah. And uh, The Last Boy Scout. But I think of all of his movies, he did The Fan too, didn't he? Yeah, Enemy of the State. Yeah. I think I'll probably have you watch that at some point. I haven't seen it in a while. It's Will Smith and Gene Hackman again. I, he just he did he did a lot of great a lot of great movies. I mean, he had a couple of stinkers in there too, like Spy Game with um, Robert Redford was not great, but mm-hmm. sometimes you do, you know how's that saying go? You do one for them and one for your one for them, one for me. Like for for actors and directors, you do one big Hollywood movie mm-hmm. and then you do your little personal pet project. I think some of these movies on his resume were definitely the one for them. Uh, before he got to do some of the the more artsy, uh, you know, stylistic pictures. So, so I would say hands down, True Romance is his best film, at least of the ones I've oh, seen. The ones you've seen. Yeah, no okay. question. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the cast because I'm sure. glad you mentioned it because what a seminal movie oh this God. was. So uh, good. We'll start with Christian Slater. So. I go to watch this movie, and my wife and I sit down to watch it, as I am wont to do. I, you know, have my oh, wife did she, watch it. Did she watch it with you, the whole thing, or sort did she of. bail out? Sort of. Okay. She fell asleep. She always does. So I put it on, and as soon as she saw that Christian Slater was in the movie, she's like, all in. Oh, she's good. like, oh, yeah, I'll watch this. You know, she's like, I like him. He's hot. I was never a, a huge fan of his, I'll be honest, coming into this. I, I always thought he reminded me of a younger version of Jack Nicholson, just without the talent. You know, he looked like Nicholson. He mimicked some of his mannerisms. I never saw Heathers, you know, which was one of the movies he's probably best known for. But I saw him in a movie called Talk Radio. Uh, it was dumb. And I remember, I remember going to the movies. I went to the theater and I saw him in a movie called Cuffs. Oh, I remember seeing that in the theater as well. It was awful. It was just bad. terrible. So was it? Uh, I want to say Mila Jovovich was in that. Like she was really young. Ah, she anyway, that's been, neither here nor there. Uh, it was just awful. But and he's like talking to the camera and it and stuff. God, it was terrible. And but then and then his career just kind of languished from there. So I didn't really well, know hang what to on. expect. He, in all fairness, Christian Slater, he was in the Mister Robot series with Remy Malik a few years back. Okay. Again, he was in a supporting role, but he was quite good in that. I'll take your word for it. So, yeah. um, so yeah, I didn't really know what to expect from him but he was fantastic at this role like he was perfectly cast i thought he was great and patricia arquette i'll be honest i don't think i've ever seen her in anything before this but she was great like she was so good because such a tough character to pull off um i love the scene when uh when he first meets her in the theater and the one thing that stood out to me was she's smoking in a movie theater. And yeah. we're always talking about that here on the podcast. How, you know, they, they smoke in these Gen X movies, but in the movie theater smoking, that was funny. I thought she was great. God, that would have been a tough role to pull off. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's tough. Cause it's like, clearly the, the character is intended to be 
visually beautiful, right? She's she's pretty to look at. She's got a great body. And but at the same time, you have to believe that this is a character who who there's more going on. She's not just a dumb, pretty face, right? It's like the character has layers, the character, which is not to say the character couldn't be more well-developed. And that's obviously a problem with movies from the 70s, 80s and 90s. The women's parts tended to be kind of, but, uh, but this one, you know, it's like she, uh, she had to be more than just, just eye candy. And I think she did a really good job of, of doing that. And through the course of the movie, I mean, both Christian Slater and Patricia Arquette's characters get beat up and they end up, you know, if you were watching them simply because they look pretty, at some points in this movie, they both start to look a lot less pretty as they uh, go through some of the, the the challenges. As much as I like their their performances, I think it's really the script that kind of brings this movie to you know, really makes it to a different level. But, yeah. Uh, but anyway, some other roles, um, some other actors. Saul Rubinek, you mentioned. Oh, I love him. God, he's good. So he's a Canadian actor from Toronto. Actually, he was born in a refugee camp in Germany after the war, but he came to Canada. He got his start in Stratford with, with, oh, the, I didn't know that. Yeah. With the Shakespeare. I knew he was theater. Canadian, but yeah. I didn't know that. Oh, good and I've mentioned him on the podcast before because I saw him in an episode of Shit's Creek. Oh, and by the way, right. once again, I just, I love how you can say Shit's Creek, but you can't say shit. The censors won't allow it. I was going to say, you can, it just gets bleeped. Yeah. I don't, that's funny how that works. But I, I think, I honestly believe he might be one of the most underrated actors of his generation. I think he's that good. He was he's in Wall good. Street and Unforgiven. He was and, so good and Unforgiven. And he was great in this. There was this little Canadian movie about cults and deprogramming called Ticket to Heaven. Came out in 1981. Okay. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard of it. Or, no, it I never heard of it. It's just fantastic movie. And, and Derek, you're a sci-fi guy. He was in an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. He was? Yeah, he oh, played yeah, a guy. The collector. He played a guy called Kivis Fajo. I don't yeah, know. he wanted the he wanted the collection. He ends up he wanted wow. to, to own data as part of his collection. Yeah, oh, yeah. I have no idea. I've never seen an episode of that show, so I wouldn't know. But uh and he was also in a personal favorite film of mine, Gary Marshall's first movie, Young Doctors in Love from 1981. He was Kurtzman. And the thing is, he's still working to this day. He does a oh, lot yeah. of theater. You know, he's yeah. written plays and he directs, but he still acts too. God, he was such a good actor. Um, James Gandolfini. Before yeah, this was one of his first, one of his first roles. He's so be. skinny. He's oh, got yeah. all the hair. It's yeah. like, oh, this isn't the Tony Soprano I remember. But I read somewhere that to prepare for that big C that he had with Patricia Arquette in the hotel room where he goes to kill her, that he didn't shower for days Oh, I had heard that too. To yeah. prepare for this. I'm not sure how that enhanced his ability to act in that scene, but you know, whatever. Um, Christopher Walken. <laughs> He's good in everything. Like that guy cannot do bad, you know? Yeah. The arguably when people, people who have seen this movie, when you talk about it, 99% of the time, the first thing you say is how about that scene with Christopher Walken and um and Dennis, Dennis Hopper. Hopper. Oh, the the interrogation let's, and let's put a pin in that and come back. Okay. To it. I want to talk about some of the scenes in a bit, if you don't mind, because okay. okay. that's yep. that scene. Yeah, yeah. Oh my god, so that good. scene was so good. Arguably the best scene of the movie. Probably, probably is. Probably is. We'll come back to it. We'll yeah. come back to it. It reminded me of another Tarantino movie, Glorious Bastards. Remember that opening scene with Christoph yes, Waltz? It reminds Waltz. me of that. It's very subdued the yes. way they play it. We'll come back to it though. Um Gary Oldman. That dude is a chameleon. 
like what what a character actor he is and what a character he created here he's basically this white rastafarian pimp yeah. <laughs> like who could pull that off and he was great like totally believable in that role and um, he's so good for such a small part yeah and such limited screen time very very limited he wasn't the only one though like lots of these actors had very limited time it goes back to what we said last week there's no small parts only small actors yep you know because these guys made the most of their of their their time on screen samuel l jackson has maybe one of the smallest parts in the movie he basically dies about five seconds after he comes i I totally forgot he was in this i I absolutely forgot and someone's like oh yeah it's got all these people in it that have gone on to be in comic book movies including samuel jackson i'm like what are you talking about? He's not in this. And then I watched, it, I'm like, Oh my God, he's in it for like, don't, don't blink. You'll miss yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. And Derek, did you happen to recognize the fat henchman? I think his name was Marty. He looked familiar, but I, I can't place him from anywhere specifically. He was the guy from coming to America. He worked at the palace. Remember he sings a song. She's oh. your queen. Is that the guy? Be. That's that guy. Oh, nice. That's him. That's why you look familiar because I just watched that not too long ago. Uh, yeah, yeah. And Michael Rapaport, mm-hmm. like he was, oh, you know. And Brad Pitt. Never been like, a big fan of Michael Rapaport, but he was pretty good in this movie. I gotta say. But he was very well cast. You know, I thought he was yes. very well. And yeah, Brad the casting Pitt, in this movie was spot on. Yeah, like Brad, Brad Pitt, Pitt is Floyd again. This is Brad Pitt pre, you know, quote superstar brad pitt this Mm -hmm. is still the up-and-comer this is before any of his big parts is before he did 12 monkeys and got an oscar nomination this is before uh you know he's in anything really big he's got this small part that apparently he he improved most of his lines and uh yeah it's just and he's so good and it's like this is one of those movies that has some quotable lines and just about everything brad pitt says is part of that quotable lines so he just needed to play he he was like a plot device that's all he was he was a plot device to so people could find the the main characters. So that yeah. how, how would they? How are these these gangsters that come across the country going to find these characters? I don't know. Yeah, have them run into this drugged Stone out guy who just says, "Oh yeah, they're over at the yeah. hotel." <laughs> like, you know, do you know where they are? Yes, I do. Oh, I do. They're over here. Yeah. But, well, where are they? The Beverly <laughs> Ambassador. They're in this room. You know, but it was so good. And the cops, Sean Penn and Tom Sizemore. They, oh, they were crazy. they were fantastic. Fantastic. Sean Penn was just, man, that guy, was, he was underrated too, you know? Tom Sizemore, ah, I could take him or leave him. And he hasn't done so a It's not lot. Sean Penn, it's, uh, it's his brother. What's oh, sorry, Sean Penn. Chris, I, Penn. Chris Penn. Chris, Chris Penn. Penn. My mistake. Yeah. Uh, Chris Penn, he was almost like a force of nature, you know? Like, he was really good in this. And again, in Reservoir Dogs, he was so good. Um, and then Bronson Pinchot that you mentioned. Mm. Again, not a lot of screen time, no. but he had some good he had some good scenes. I like how they put him on the roller coaster. They do that to set him up as a wimp. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And then, yeah. you know, he ends up he's the guy that turns and works with the cops and kind of gives them away. And then the one that really got me of all these supporting uh, actors was Elvis. Cuz it was it was Val Kilmer. Val Kilmer as as Elvis. But technically they they couldn't get there was some illegal there were some legal issues with the, with calling him Elvis they couldn't get any of the rights to the Elvis music so they they literally in the credits just call him mentor yeah but it's obviously clear he's supposed to be Elvis Presley um, I mean given how much Christian Slater's character is clearly obsessed with Elvis there's no doubt that that's who he's, who Val Kilmer's supposed to be but again there's there's ways around it so they don't get in trouble with the law right. <laughs> 
I, I liked how it was Val Kilmer, or sorry, Val Kilmer, before he got all old and fat. So just yeah, like Elvis. This was, this was pre-Batman Val Kilmer. <laughs> yeah, it was like it was like him and Elvis, their careers had that parallel. You know, remember the, remember there was fat, sweaty Elvis at the end? Yep. It's kind of, anyway, but um, so anyway, just I want to talk a little bit about the movie itself and just kind of how it's all strung together. It opens up with Christian Slater working in a comic book store and my wife turns to me and she says, well, no wonder Derek likes this movie. It's got comic books in it. <laughs> and and then the girl falls in love with him while he's talking about comic books. And let's be honest, talking about comic books rarely leads to sex. <laughs> it just doesn't. Hey, right? Chris, your life and my life have been very different. That's, that's all I'm going to say. So, okay, so there's that. But this this whole idea, you know, of this guy that's kind of a comic book nerd, you know, he would basically dream of meeting this buxom blonde. You know, she's good looking and she's totally into him, you know, love at first sight. And he gets to sleep with her and he gets to fall into these crazy badass situations. He comes across a bag of drugs, gets to go to California, gets involved in a shootout and he gets to talk to Elvis. So the script is phenomenal. It's basically this hyperkinetic masculinity at yeah, play. It's, it's wish fulfillment. It's, yeah. It's everything you would want to be. If you were... If you were Quentin Tarantino, the young guy who worked in the video store, the comic book store, something like you're a nerdy kid growing up, what's the absolute best thing you could have happen to you? Beautiful woman falls in love with me. I fall in love with her. She has all the same interests as me. She wants to do all the same crazy things I want to do. And we're going to get in an adventure and we're going to, you know, end up with all this money and living on a desert island with uh, and, and have this beautiful life together. Like that's the wish. That's the wish. And through the course of this two hour journey, you have this wish fulfillment. And, and like, I mean, as much as we would enjoy working in a comic book store, it would be kind of boring, you know? And so you'd kind of crave that adventure, you know? And that's one of the reasons why you'd probably like comic books to begin with, because you crave kind of that adventure that's in the comic book. So here, the script allows this character to live out his wildest fantasies, you know, in everything that happens. So good. <laughs> so well written. Tarantino is just fantastic. There's a quote in the movie. I made a note um, where I can't remember who said it, but it was live fast, die young, leave a good looking corpse. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure where that quote comes from originally. I, would, I always associate it with James Dean. Is that what it is? Live fast, die young, leave a good looking corpse. Oh, okay. And, I, and I, that, I, I don't know if he said it or no, if it was said I, about him, maybe. but I, for some reason, that's when my mind, that's where that always has originated. Um, and it's been used and reused a lot of times mm -hmm. in pop culture. Uh, and I think it's it's done to great example in this movie, too. I remember it from an SNL short. Back in the 70s, this guy called Tom Schiller, he used to do these like short films for Saturday Night Live. And my personal favorite was one that he did. It was a black and white short film called Don't Look Back in Anger. And it was okay. basically John Belushi as an old man. And he's old and, and he's got a cane and he's walking along. It's black and white and there's snow on the ground and he's walking into a graveyard and he's talking about all the members of the not ready for primetime players cast and how they've all died. And he's the only one that was left. And he's looking at, he goes over to the grave of, of Ackroyd and he talks about him and he goes over to Gilda Radner's 
grave and he talks about all of them and how he's the only one left and he outlived them all because he's a dancer and he starts dancing around the graves and it just obviously was a very impactful you know mm. film as you look back on it because I mean he was the first to die right but he he mentions that quote in that movie and, and, and where he says live fast die young leave a good looking corpse so that's where it stood out to me right away but I, hmm. I, I knew it had to be in other pop culture things. I wasn't sure. Um, another thing in this movie I thought was interesting was the music. Yes. What was going well, now, on? Wait, are you referring to the score or the soundtrack or both? Because um, for me, it's always been the score. The Hans Zimmer score, the score with the xylophone. Yeah. The, the, the main theme that, that is played at the beginning and at the end. I think I, I actually wasn't sure if it was composed for the movie or if it was like something that had been reused. So I actually pulled out my phone and used Shazam. They're like, what's this, what's this song called? And they said Hans Zimmer and it's called you're so cool or he's so cool or something. It's again, it was created for the movie and I've heard it used and reused in other things since this movie. Um, so it obviously, uh, stuck with a lot of people. If other, other movie makers are, are borrowing it for their projects. Yeah. It was like that, the, the, it was a score for me. The, the, that kind of Hawaiian music kind of, it was weird. Like it just, yeah. it almost felt out of place at times. And then it started to make me think, is this whole thing a dream in a way? Because this would be the dream of this, you know, kind of lonely single guy working at the comic book store. Like, I, I, I just, I thought it was brilliant the way the whole movie was put together. But the thing that I liked, I think, was the fact that the music, whether it was the score or the soundtrack, it didn't take over the scene at any time. Yeah. And yeah. I think if Tarantino had directed this movie, it might be different. So I, I have the um, the DVD of this movie. Again, this is one of okay. my favorite movies. Mm -hmm. So I've had it. I have the special edition collector's version, which has the, the original movie on the one disc and then all sorts of special features and behind the scenes stuff on the other disc. And one of the one of the bonuses on it is there are audio commentary tracks uh, with the director, with mm -hmm. Tarantino himself, with some of the performers. There's like different audio tracks. And I remember years ago listening to the one with Tarantino where he says with the, the written script, he had music cues for which songs he felt would would be appropriate with which scenes. And when the when Tony Scott took over the project and, you know, the studio gave Tony Scott money to make the movie, one of their conditions was you're not allowed to use any of Tarantino's music cues. And apparently the only one that, that they were able to 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 use was the scene with Dennis Hopper when you first see him where he's like, he, I guess he's a security guard. He's like closing up the big gates and he's driving away in his car and he's singing words to a song, which is a song I didn't know about. And then then the song itself starts to play in the background. That was the only music cue that Tarantino had suggested with his original script that they let they let slide through. So I think you're absolutely right. If this had been a Tarantino-led project and he had had the clout and he had had the, the money, the music would have been very different. And I think we might remember certain scenes of this movie differently because certain music might have affected the way that we that we interpret it, just like we do with with uh, Reservoir Dogs, right? Like I can't hear "Stuck in the Middle with You" without thinking of the the scene where he cuts off his ear. It's like certain certain songs become so pivotal and connected to certain scenes. I think we would have had a lot more of that, not necessarily in a good way, with this movie if it had been Tarantino. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, like I mentioned, if if Tarantino had directed this. The music would have been used differently. But I think another thing that would be different would be the performances. 
Tarantino's movies, the performances are sometimes a little bit over the top. Whereas in this, you don't film, think Sal Rubinek was over the top? Well, yeah, somewhat. But I think there was there was a lot of more subdued acting yeah. in some of yeah. the scenes, which we'll get to in a second. Because um, speaking of the scenes, Gandolfini's speech to Arquette when he says the first time you kill someone, yeah, you know, is like this. Just the dialogue is fantastic. Tarantino is a master of writing dialogue, you yeah, know, that, like, that's a hundred percent Tarantino there. And, and there's so, again, like you said, so many of the best sort of most memorable scenes in this movie come down to the dialogue. And that's, that's a hundred percent Tarantino. Well, and also if you think of the opening scene in, um, in, um, reservoir dogs in reservoir dogs, you know, when, yeah. they're, when they're talking about Madonna and, yeah. and, and the waitress and when you tip and yeah. all that stuff. And then, um, yeah. um, Inglorious Bastards, the opening scene when uh, Christoph Waltz is talking to the guy about the Jews underneath the floorboards and stuff. Mm-hmm. The dialogue is just so powerful. Um, another thing that is a a bit of a tradition in in uh, Tarantino films is the is the shootout first of all, and the Mexican st- standoff. So Tarantino obviously grew up working at a video store, just kind of like someone else we know around here. You know, he and he loved watching movies, but one of the types of movies he liked watching was those older Hong Kong films. Yeah. You know, directors like John Woo, and they would use that Mexican standoff, you know, in their movies where everyone's pointing a gun at each other and everyone's yelling and who knows what's going to happen and what, what they're going to do. And Tarantino uses this a lot. Like he used it in Pulp Fiction, in the diner and Reservoir Dogs in the warehouse. Stop and pointing that gun at my dad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it's here, you know, as well. And then this massive shootout happens. Like, it's just yep. crazy. But the, the scene I want to talk about is the one that we talked about earlier and I'm going to come back to it. Between uh, Dennis Hopper and Christopher Walken. <laughs> you can't talk about this movie and not talk oh about the scene. It's so good. good. It's so amazing. Yeah. These are two actors that were just at the top of their game here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, oh, and, and I think the thing is, I love how restrained it is because they could have played this completely over the top, mm-hmm. but they didn't. It's very subdued. Hopper knows he's going to die. He knows yeah, when, he asked, when he asked for the cigarette that he knows at that point, he knows he's going to die. He's like, can I get that Chesterfield now? Like it's yeah. that, that acknowledgement of someone who you now understand, you know, is an ex cop. And he's been trying to cover for his son and he realizes I'm going to do what I can to protect my son, but I'm not getting out of this. And it's like, okay, how do I spend the last two minutes of my life? So he's like, well, the old thing, right? Every condemned man gets a last cigarette. So it's like, I'm going to take that cigarette now. And that, that to me was sort of the, the unspoken exchange between these two characters that they both were accepting of. We both know where this is going to go. He asked for the cigarette. He gladly gives it to him. And then Rather than just kill him immediately, he gives him – Christopher Walker's character gives Dennis Hopper a chance to say whatever he wants to say. He's like, fine, I'm giving you a last smoke, and I'm going to let you say your last words. And, of course, he doesn't expect them to be what they are, and it, it actually it provokes an emotional reaction, which I think is what, you know, what Dennis Hopper's hope was. He didn't want to have a long, drawn-out, slow, torturous death. Mm-hmm. He's like, how do I provoke this guy to just kill me outright? And he did. But, and but even more than that, he knew he was going to die. So he thought, okay, what am I going to do here? I'm going to get under his skin. Yeah. 
<laughs> and so yeah. he, he goes after the one thing that he knew he could get him with was race. Yeah. And, and then the dropping the, you got the these pride of two, nationality. Yeah. For sure. These two white actors dropping the N word back and forth in, but it's still such a subdued scene. Like what a powerful, powerful scene. That, that scene just rocked me. Like it was just so incredibly done. But again, I think it would have been very different if Tarantino had directed this movie. That scene oh, would have yeah. been completely different. He would have played it a different yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. again, Tarantino can do dialogue, like direct dialogue oh, scenes. Sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, like I said, the, the opening scene of, of Reservoir Dogs where they're at the table and the camera's just going around and around the table. Or even in Pulp Fiction at the end where uh, the two of them are in the diner. I mean, mm-hmm. there's not a lot to work with there. It's a lot of just back and forth. But yeah, I agree, though. I think that Tony Scott... Uh, brings a brings a different sort of idea to how to how to shoot that scene and and what we get is fantastic. I'm glad that Tony Scott directed this film. I think it made it a better movie than if Tarantino would have directed it, and that is saying something because I think Tarantino is a phenomenal director. But think of where Tarantino was at 1993. Like mm-hmm. at that point, he was still a young, unproven, up and coming director. One Whereas movie at under this his point, belt. That was it. Right at this point, Tony Scott had done. Top Gun. He mm. had done Beverly Hills Cop 2. You know what I mean? Like he had some big movies under his belt and he had proven that he could do it. So I agree. I think I think given the in the moment, this was the right decision. And I think even now looking back, this was the right decision. Yeah, so do I. Um, if you had to rate this movie out of 10. Oh, I like this one a lot. I, I think we're probably looking at a nine, maybe even up to a nine and a half on the right day of the week. But uh, I, I definitely give it a solid nine. Yeah, I think I might go nine and a half. Yeah, <laughs> it was so I got no problem with that. Good. It was so darn good. And uh, like I said, you've made me watch some crappy movies over the years. But uh, this was not one of them. This one was absolutely fantastic. So, well, so, I'm glad, so thank I'm you. glad you enjoyed it. I'm thank you for you the it. experience of, of watching this movie. I thought it was great. So anyway, on that note, let's have some fun with Caveman. All right, my friend. I thought one of the best parts of this movie, and there was a lot of things to like, but I thought one of the best parts was the shootout at the end between the okay. cops and the mob. It was such a great scene. I love that everybody dies except the main characters in the movie. They it's just Christian away. Slater, Patricia Arquette, and and James Rappaport, or Michael Rappaport. They're the they're the three heroes we've been following. They're the only ones that live at the end of that scene. And also the fact that it kind of ties into what I said before. It made me feel like it was kind of a dream because it just all just kind of everything just kind of works out, <laughs> you know. But, uh, yeah. but the shootout I thought was great, you know. And and what Tarantino film would be complete you know, without a massive shootout. So I'll tell you what, it's not the only movie to have a memorable or great shootout scene in it. Oh, so okay. Here's what so I'm going to do. Here. I'm yeah. going to give you the year, the director, and the synopsis. I'm going to oh, give boy. you everything. Okay. And you name the movie. Now keep in mind, all of these movie titles have memorable shootouts in them. Really, really memorable. Okay. So, so this is not really my my wheelhouse genre. So I don't know how well I'm going to do, but I, I know fine. some of the quote unquote classics in this genre. So hopefully you got a few easy low balls at me. But you uh, will yeah. do just fine. Okay. Trust me. Okay. okay. Lay them on me. Let's. let's anyone playing along at home, you're going to do fine too. Okay. Okay. So okay. 2012, Quentin Tarantino, with the help of a German bounty hunter, a freed slave, sets out to rescue his wife from a brutal plantation owner in Mississippi. 
Yeah, I just watched this two weeks ago. This is Django Unchained. See, told you it'd be easy. All but right. if I hadn't have just watched that, I probably wouldn't have got that one. Really? Guaranteed. Well, I would. you said Quentin Tarantino. I would have yeah. had to guess. But, yeah. yeah. So that's why I make it easy. Give you the year, the okay. director, okay. and the synopsis. Okay. 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 1976. We're going back. But it's Martin Scorsese. Mm-hmm. A mentally unstable veteran works as a nighttime taxi driver in New York City where the perceived decadence and sleaze fuels his urge for violent action by attempting to liberate a presidential campaign worker and an underage prostitute. Uh, was that Taxi Driver? Of course it was Taxi Driver. I, I honestly don't remember. I, I, I watched it once. I didn't like it. I honestly don't remember how the movie ended. Oh, dude, man, you got some problems. Okay, 1987, Brian De Palma. During the era of Prohibition in the United States, a federal agent sets out to stop a ruthless Chicago gangster and because of rampant corruption, assembles a small, hand-picked team to help him. Uh, That was The Untouchables. It was The Untouchables. Very good. Okay, 1997, Curtis Hansen, a corruption as, or sorry, as corruption grows in 1950s Los Angeles, three policemen, one straight-laced, one brutal, and one sleazy, investigate a series of murders with their own brand of justice. Uh, was that LA Confidential? It most certainly was. Nice. Have you seen that movie? No. Uh, we may have to watch that. It's been a long... Oh, I'll have to rewatch it first, though, because it may not hold up. Okay. Anyway. 1969. George Roy Hill. In Wyoming, during the early 1900s, two men are the leaders of a band of outlaws. After a train robbery goes wrong, they find themselves on the run with a posse hard on their heels. Their solution? Escape to Bolivia. Right. Uh, that was uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Yes, it was. All right, 1983, Brian De Palma again. In 1980, Miami, a determined Cuban immigrant takes over a drug cartel and succumbs to greed. This is Scarface. See, you're doing so good. When, when you said Brian De Palma on the last question, I thought, mm-hmm. oh, this is going to be Scarface. And then yep. you're like, Prohibition era. I'm like, okay, this isn't Scarface. And then I'm like, ah, oh, there, you got Scarface eventually. All right, 1984, Joel and Ethan Cohen. The owner of a seedy small town Texas bar discovers that one of his employees is having an affair with his wife. A chaotic chain of misunderstandings, lies, and mischief ensues after he devises a plot to have them murdered. Hmm. Uh, I gotta guess. Is it Blood Simple? Yes. And the and, and the the bullets coming through the dark wall with the light coming in. God, that was good. I, I've never seen it. I just I I've so, when you said Joel and Ethan Cohen, I'm like, yeah. well, there's only a few of their movies I haven't seen, so that was that was my guess. All right, 1990. Phil, this is a tough one. Phil Jawanu. A New York cop is recruited to return to his hometown and infiltrate the mob ran by his best friend's brother. Wow. Uh, Sorry, what was the year again? 90? 1990. It's with Sean Penn 
and Gary Oldman also in this movie tonight. Wow. I don't know. That doesn't sound familiar at all. The State of Grace. No, I never heard of it. State of Grace. All right, 1992, John Woo, a tough-as-nails cop, teams up with an undercover agent to shut down a sinister mobster and his crew. Wow. Uh, I want to say The Replacement Killers, but I don't think that's right. I don't know. One of my favorite foreign films, Hard Boiled. Hard Boiled. Oh, right, so right, good. right. I'm thinking English language. I wasn't even thinking... Uh, uh, yeah, okay. It's okay. been a while since I've seen that one, too. Well, this is before John Woo came to Hollywood. Okay, yeah. we're going to go way back for the last one. 1969, Sam Peckinpah. An aging group of outlaws look for one last big score as the traditional American West is disappearing around them. Well, the only shootout movie we haven't covered, mm-hmm. I'm going to guess, just because I don't know the answer to that one, was it The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly? Oh, man, I thought you were getting... It's The Wild Bunch. Oh, the yeah. Wild, one of the greatest shootouts in history. Of all these movies, though, I think my favorite shootout might be Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Yeah, oh, yeah. God. At the end of that movie, they think, okay, we could take these guys. We could do this. Yeah. And they just yeah, run yeah. out, you know, they're dead. <laughs> the yeah. movie just stops. It just well, I don't know. We don't see them die. Are well, they really dead? You it's, know. It's a Game of Thrones yeah. rules. Yeah. If they're not, if you don't see yeah. them dead on screen, they may not actually be dead. Right. But you They know. could do a sequel one day. Yeah, you know. It's over. Um, okay. So uh, you did pretty good there. You got most, and you were worried going into that. But no, yeah, I was worried there was going to be more questions about westerns because I, no. I don't know westerns very well. I don't I know really they like have, a lot of them have yeah. shootouts at the end. I don't like westerns either, so I wouldn't do that to you, you know. Okay. So, uh, so next week we're going to come back with a, a top five or a topic, you know. So mm-hmm. we'll have to figure what that's going to be. Um, but uh, until then, this is Chris McBride for Derek Myers saying thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. <laughs> for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show.